I want to thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you to the Trotter family for, uh, for endowing this, this, uh, this prize. I've met um, the Trotters, uh, Mr. Trotter, at, at, on other occasions, and uh, uh, it's really an honor to be able to be here. This is, as you can understand, an, an interesting forum in that, in that uh, um, I'm able to speak both about my science and my faith, and how faith has impacted my science and science has impacted my faith. And so that's what I'd like to, to talk about today. And I think it's, it's, um, it's exciting for me and it's, and it's both humbling for me to be here. And uh, hopefully I can, I can uh, show you some of the things that we've done. This is, this is uh, the technical slide that I'll show. And uh, nothing else is as busy as this from the next slides, but this is all the technology I'm going to show you today, which is just a portion of what we're doing in our group, and I'll take you through some of this so that you get an idea for, uh, about some of the things that we're working on. So here in the upper left, we've made composites for spacecraft, for, for actually uh, uh, treating spacecraft, uh, uh, being able to, to uh, remotely repair in flight. Uh, we, we've, uh, we add carbon nanotubes to NOAAX resin, and the idea is that we can just use a 30-watt microwave gun to cure these. Prior to this, uh, I had asked them, I had told them, you really need to be able to do repairs in flight. And they said, well, we have NOACs up there. We can do repairs. I said, but the problem is it doesn't cure until 1,000 degrees centigrade. They said, yes, we hope it would cure upon reentry, which is a, a tough thing to think of your, your aircraft, your spacecraft curing upon reentry. Uh, but using this, this microwave gun, you can now just use 30 watts, which is a very low amount of microwave power. Typical kitchen microwave is about 1,400 watts. Uh, we make a lot of fibers. We've learned how to split carbon nanotubes into ribbons. If you think about a tube and you split this longitudinally, and the reason these split longitudinally is because of the same forces that will split a water pipe when it freezes, uh, and these split longitudinally, and this is a very good process. This has now uh, uh, been picked up by a division of Merck, and it's being scaled, and so, so this can be bought in, in, in large amounts now. We've used some of these nano ribbons actually to, uh, to de-ice platforms. So what you see here is a piece of glass where we've just put a voltage on each side of the glass, and the glass has been treated with these nano ribbons that then has an, a, a polyurethane coating over it. You put a voltage across, and the ice just melts off. This is actually in a minus 20 degrees C box. This is just a, a thermocouple measuring the temperature inside the box. There's also a thermocouple on the back side of this slide. And so the, 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 this is the ice, but what's, what's really interesting about this, and you can see that this ice falls off, you can see the thermocouple on the back side measuring the temperature. As soon as the, the ice melts and hits the bottom pan, it refreezes because it's minus 20 degrees centigrade in there. <clears throat> but what's nice about this is it's RF transparent. The thin films that these graphene nanoribbons endow allows them to be RF transparent so that radio waves can go through them. So we're using them for radomes. These are now being coated on an array of radomes that are 15 meters in diameter, each radome in Alaska. So these are being picked up and, and used for that because they don't obscure the, 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 uh, the RF radiation from the, the radar source, but you can use, do de-icing. And so it's a really good way to go. It's going to be used on phased ray antenna and also, we hope, on car windows so that you can, you can do de-icing electrically on car windows. There's no wires being here, here and you just apply a voltage, but they're also RF transparent. 
so there can be communication in and out. And if you look at the major structure inside a, a, a uh, office building, uh, skyscrapers, it's all glass. Construction is going to all glass. And here you would have RF transparency, so you can still do Wi-Fi through here. You can still do uh, uh, RF transmission through the windows. Use your cell phones through the skyscraper windows. We've learned how to grow graphene on copper. <clears throat> we can put down any carbon source. And to demonstrate this, this is the leg of a roach. We put it on a piece of copper, heat it up to 1,000 degrees, it turns into graphene. Graphene is a single atom layer thick sheet of graphite. Any carbon material. We did it with cookies. Took a box of Girl Scout cookies, $3.50 it was for that box. And then if you take all the carbon in that, Girl Scout, in that box of Girl Scout cookies for $3.50, and if you were to convert it all to graphene and sell it as two centimeter square pieces, the way it's marketed, you could sell it for $15 billion. So you see that the, the cost is not in the element itself, it's all in the arrangement of the elements. Any carbon source is going to thermodynamically go into graphene, turn into graphene upon heating to a, to a thousand degrees on, on a copper film. We've made these other carbon materials that we are now making out of asphalt. Asphalt, really cheap material, and we can trap over 100% of CO2 by weight. So in other words, if you go in with a kilo of material, you get two, you, 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 you get two kilos out, one of those kilos now being CO2, out of natural gas. So if you use a natural, natural gas inside of a, a, a car, you can get 30% lower CO2 emissions, but you negate that because at the natural gas well, you're blowing out 10 to 20 mole percent of CO2 with the natural gas, and that's usually just vented to the air. Here we can trap it. This is a... a, a this is now being funded by Apache and going to be moved into their platforms. We make a lot of uh, drilling fluid additives from graphene materials, graphene oxide. The idea is you pump down the drilling fluid. Generally, the drilling fluid will, will infiltrate the pristine formation. <clears throat> but uh, uh, if we put in these sheets of graphene oxide, you don't, you, don't, you don't have any of those problems occurring because these form a filter cake on the side. It's actually very thin. Then when you release the drilling pressure, the natural formation, the natural pressure in the formation just pushes these right back off. We've made seamless carbon nanotubes from graphene where you can take a sheet of 2D graphene, grow seamlessly carbon nanotubes from them. They give us electrodes at over 2,000 meters squared per gram. These are the best electrodes in the world. This is also transferring into industry whether you want to apply it to supercapacitors or batteries or other electrodes of any device. It gives you very high surface area and it's an ohmic conduction from the top of the nanotube to the graphene below. Uh, these are little sensors that we built that we send downhole to identify oil downhole because uh, uh, 30 to 70 percent of the oil is left downhole because we don't know how much is left down there. So how much are we going to invest to go after it? These are the little sensors that go downhole and they report how much oil is left downhole. This is all funded by the Advanced Energy Consortium. This is funded by Schlumberger. Again, this by Apache. Uh, this is, uh, uh, your, th these are flakes of graphene oxide. We came up with a procedure for making graphene oxide. That's taking graphite and we oxidize it and you form graphene oxide, which are sheets of graphene with oxygen groups above and below. Remember, they're only one atom thick and then we have oxygen groups above and below. They disperse in water and they're really tremendous at picking up radioactive nuclide from water. So this is the common materials that are used, bentonite, activated carbon, and hematite. This is what the graphene oxide does. This is trapping of uranium. We're now moving this into the Fukushima site to pick up cesium and strontium 
from, from that, natural, that, that uh, uh, man-made disaster site in uh, Fukushima, Japan. So this is with a company called Zonko that this is, this is moving out into that area. We make transparent memories. This is a, a, a transparent film that actually has silicon oxide memories embedded in it. So we're making transparent memories. These are resistive random access memories that have the, the switching time of dynamic random access memory, DRAM, so sub-50 uh, nanosecond uh, switching time, and uh, uh, they only need two terminals, so we're building 3D memory from this. We have other projects where we're, we're, we've made these carbon nanoparticles that will, are, this is funded by the Department of, of Defense, where many of our soldiers were coming back from the Middle East theater with brain injuries from IED explosions. And so here's a brain injury that occurs. In, this is in a, in a rat brain in a model that we use. And, and so you can see this large section of the brain is gone. This is when there's a traumatic brain injury coupled with hemorrhagic shock, low blood pressure from a severed artery. If we, we, we can go from a brain like this to a brain like this with almost no loss of brain tissue by treatment, two treatments of the carbon nanoparticles uh, once they get to a field hospital within 90 minutes of, of the accident, just before you do the blood reinfusion. And the reason these work is they're great traps of something called superoxide. Superoxide degrades the tissue, and we, we treat this with, with the carbon nanoparticles. This is working extremely well also for stroke. So the two biggest disablers of Americans in the young age, traumatic brain injury due to car accidents and falls, and in the older aged Americans is in stroke. This works well in both of these areas for stroke for the same reason. The reason that stroke causes real problems is that there's a clot in the brain, so there's oxygen-starved material. The patient is brought to the hospital. They remove that clot, either with a device or with, 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 with drug treatment. As soon as oxygen reflows into this, what had been ischemic material, oxygen-starved material, you get degradation due to superoxide formation. This prevents the excess of superoxide formation without inhibiting the, uh, the production of something called nitric oxide. We've also used this in drug delivery. This is the flank of a mouse. There were two tumors here. One we, del we delivered directly to the tumor just through a tail vein injection, so it's a targeted therapy. So there's a monoclonal antibody <coughs> coupled to a drug, coupled to the, the, the carbon nanoparticles. This one was, it was not directed to that tumor. So you can see the big difference of directing versus not directing. And the last thing I'll tell you about is, is our work in nanomachines. This is a nano car here. You see it has four wheels, independently rotating axles, and it even has a motor. We can park 50,000 of these cars across the diameter of a human hair. That's how small these are. And, and we built in these little motors into these systems so that as the motor turns, you shine a light on this, and the motor only turns in one direction to push these cars along a surface. And you can actually see in, in, in this video, you can see a nano car with its four wheels moving across this surface by scanning tunneling microscopy. And the reason this only turns in one direction when we shine a light on it is because this, this motor has two elements of, of chirality. It has the twist here, and it also has a, a methyl group here, so there's a chiral center or stereogenic center at this site. So when you shine a light on this, it goes to an excited state that's orthogonal. It can go down either side, but because of the neighboring stereogenic center, the two ways that it can go down are diastereotopic, therefore necessarily different in energy. So it goes down the lower energy side and keeps turning in one direction. So um, 
Why nanomachines? Why would somebody want nanomachines? Well, why does somebody want Mona Lisa? I mean, she's just attractive. So, we don't have to have function, we don't have to have application in the academy. We can do things just for the sake of science, just because it's interesting science. Here's something that, that's just interesting. Nonetheless, our, our desire for the nanomachines is to do bottom-up construction. So when you see a tree, for example, this tree has been made from the bottom up. So when we're people, what we do is we build things from the top down. We, see, we, we want to build a table, we go out, we find a tree, we make that table. Top down, we find something big, we cut it out, we make something smaller. Nature builds everything sophisticated from the bottom up. So you have certain interactions that occur that, will, that are thermodynamic interactions, but you can never get sophisticated assembly by, by having regular assembly, patterned assembly, like AAA or ABAB. You'll never have sophisticated structure that way. We know from computer science, if you want sophisticated architecture, you have to be able to have non-regular assembly. And that's what you have. You have these molecules coming together and you have cells, and the cells go and you form this tree. So how can we have non-regular assembly? Well, in nature, the nature does bottom-up construction. This is generally how it's done in nature. Now, one might be able to someday program these, these acorns, these seeds, to go directly to the table. Why not just code in the DNA rather than go here, go directly to here? One might be able to do that. Our desire is that we, take, we would take atoms or carbohydrates and have nanomachines go ahead and build. Can we have bottom-up, truly bottom-up construction? Because this is exactly what happens in nature. This is actually the way God has built every sort of, of, of uh, complex structure has been built from the bottom up. It's ubiquitous. You look around, you see all these biological systems, including you and me, built from the bottom up. And what happens is, to get this non-regular assembly, what, what's done is, is, is to use nature's nanomachines, which are enzymes, which do construction, put things together. So you eat, eat a, say, say, a bagel this morning, or, or, or grits this morning, and, and by, by, this ap- by this afternoon it becomes a part of your ear. How does that happen? These molecules are broken down, and they are used to rebuild cellular structure in other places. You say, well, how, how, how well could these build? If you think about, for example, hemoglobin, each heme only carries one molecule of oxygen. That's it. Each heme is only one molecule of oxygen. So you've got these, this dimeric structure, and then this assembles in, into the, the larger dimer. So you've got four hemes on each hemoglobin, but each only carries one molecule of oxygen. So how can we survive? We take a breath. Oxygen is carried, say, to our toe, to, to a cell that's crying out for oxygen, drops off the oxygen, and carries CO2 back out to detoxify the cell. So this, this dual direction, we... we fill up a truck in New York, we send it to L.A., we don't send the truck back empty, we fill it up with something else. Nature does this very thing. There's no power source in that hemoglobin, it's just pushed around by the gross, gross uh, pumping of the heart. Nonetheless, we built these machines at this level with little motors. So the idea is that could we use machines to really pick things up and build so that in 100 years or 200 years, could we build skyscrapers just by bringing in nanomachines and raw materials and just programming them to build using electrical pulses and program them to build. It sounds like science fiction, but that's exactly how every complex structure in nature is made from the bottom up. And there's nothing magical about the way this is done with biology. It's sophisticated, but nothing magical about it. And so can we think of building from the bottom up? 
And, and there's, you say, well, it, it doesn't build these things very fast. There's some strains of grass that grow two feet tall in a single day. You increase that by an order of magnitude, you'd have 20 feet tall in a single day. So you don't, it doesn't have to be a slow construction. It can actually be quite rapid construction. And the sophistication in that blade of grass is more than the construction sophistication in this building. So it's been demonstrated to us in nature. So that's the drive. Can we learn how to first control motion in small nanomachines at this level, then pick things up? We have built a whole series of nanomachines, nano-backhoes that can pick up atoms. We've built uh, uh, nano-caterpillars. We've built things with, with extra wheels on them. We've built these motorized systems, fast cars, slow stars, cars. We've built nano-dragsters with big rear wheels, small front wheels. These structures can be built. The slow step is learning how to control their motion, and right now we control their motion with, with electric fields. Gives you an overview. That's the overview of nanotechnology in our group, and there's the people in the group who do it. And uh, uh, this is, to me, like a family. I, I love these folks, and these are the ones that do all the work. These are the ones that, that do the work, and, and uh, um, I don't go in the lab very much. They, they'd be afraid. They'd, they'd be afraid that I'd hurt myself in there. But uh, they're the ones that, that, that put all these things together. So how did I become interested in chemistry? How does one become interested in chemistry? Well, here's where I started. I wanted to be a New York State trooper. That's really what I wanted to be. But I'm colorblind, red-green colorblind. I don't know if it keeps you out of the academy now. Uh, it did at the time. I think probably now you could be a, a, a paraplegic and, and get into a police academy. But at the time, you couldn't be colorblind. So I thought I'd study forensic science, and my dad gave me a suggestion, and the amazing thing was I was 17 years old, and I listened to my dad's advice, and, and uh, my father's advice was, why don't you just study, uh, a, why, why don't you just study a general degree in chemistry, and then when you get done with your four-year degree, you can go and, and, and specialize in forensic science. So I took his advice, but then I hit organic chemistry, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. I loved organic chemistry so much that, that I worked not just the assigned problems in the textbook, but on Friday nights when all the students were out doing other things, I would go find an empty classroom and sit in there and work all the problems in the organic chemistry textbook that had not been assigned. That's how much I loved organic chemistry, to be able to design and synthesize molecules. And so where I've come is I look at molecular structure and I see it in everything. Everything that I look at, I think of molecular structure. So here I'm, I'm, I'm walking on this wood platform. I know in my mind's eye what the, the, this, these carbohydrate structures are that make up cellulose. And I know exactly the structure. I, I know their structure in my mind. It's, I've memorized the structure. And I know why it has the properties it has. I know why you can drive a car into a tree and the car falls apart and the tree just, is just fine. And, and, and because these are held together by hydrogen bonds between these, these different carbohydrate structures. Had they been covalent bonds, they would have broken. But you have these hydrogen bonds that hold these together, and you get enough hydrogen bonds, each one of them being 2 to 5 kilocalories per mole, you get a very strong structure, but it can bend, and, and it can have this, this flexing that can occur. I look at, at people, I see molecular structure. Even when, when I'm talking to people, I'm looking at them right in the eye. And I'm thinking, as they're talking to me, I'm thinking about the firing that's going on in their neurons in their brain. And I'm looking right at their eye. And it's really extraordinary to think of this. In everything, I see molecular structure. I look at a tree and I see a leaf. And right away, I think a atom sitting inside a porphyrin. And this, this photon of light coming in. And then injection of electrons that's starting the photosynthesis process. 
And, and so you start thinking of molecular structure. And this is what I tell my students. Don't just think of the solvent THF as, uh, as, as tetrahydrofuran. You envision this structure in your mind. It's got this oxygen. That oxygen atom is going to has these lone pairs of electrons. That's going to plug into a site. You start thinking of molecular structure. You think in a molecular structure sense. And we'll get back to more of that. Well, this is how I came to faith. So how does somebody come to faith? So I, I was born in a Jewish home in New York City. We were secular Jews. I was not a good Jew. And, and uh, uh, I went to synagogue once or twice a year, like many Jews in New York City, many Jews around the world. And I never read the Jewish scriptures. I mean, I, I, you know, I heard them. I tried reading it once. It was impossible, and I stopped. I was 18 years old. And I was sitting in the laundry room, doing my laundry, and there was another guy in there, and it was August of my freshman year. And, and uh, uh, so I had just gotten to the university, and the other person doing his laundry in the laundry room was a quarterback on the Syracuse University football team, and I asked him, I said, so do you want to play professional football when you get done? He says, oh, no, I'm not good enough for that. I said, well, what do you want to do? He says, well, maybe lay ministry. I said, lay ministry? What's that? I had no idea. Jews don't know what lay ministry means. And... and uh, uh, he said, well, like a missionary. I said, missionary? Missionaries? We don't need missionaries today. It's 1977. We got TV. Why do we need missionaries? He said, I'd like to give you an illustration of the gospel. I didn't even really know what he meant. And I said, okay, go ahead. And so he started telling me about how people are on one side of a chasm and God's on another side. And Sin separates us. And then he had me read a verse from the Bible and it said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not a sinner. It's, that's a very strange thing for a Christian to hear. But as, as a modern secular Jew, you know what I mean. You don't think about sin. You go to the, the synagogue once a year and you're good to go. And, and uh, um, so, so I, I, was, I said, I'm not a sinner. Then he had me read a verse. Jesus, Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. I was 18 years old, and I, that was the first time I had ever thought about sin. And I said, that's the definition of sin. I'm a sinner. And it really impacted me. Why should the words of a man from 2,000 years ago hit me? But it really hit me. And then he explained, he had me read a verse, how Jesus Christ's death for me provides a bridge for me to get to God, how my, all my, my, my good works fall short. And the common thing in all religions is, is you do enough good works to outweigh your bad works and you'll be okay. But the Bible clearly said that's not it. It's not by works that you are saved, lest any man should boast. That Jesus provides a way for me to get to God. I thought about this for several months. The night of November 7th, 1977, I was in that room, the Lawrenson Dormitory at Syracuse University, in that room. I was all alone. My roommate wasn't there. And the door was shut, and I got down on my knees, something that had not been demonstrated to me in Christianity. Christians usually sit when they pray. Jews usually stand when they pray. And I got down on my knees, and I said, Lord, forgive me, because I am a sinner and come into my life. And I felt this burden of sin that I had, started, I had been carrying since he shared that with me in, in August just started to lift from me. And there was this rush of forgiveness and all of a sudden there was somebody in my room with me. And I opened my eyes to see who was standing in my room and I didn't see anybody but there was somebody there, a presence was there 
I had never known a presence like this. I wasn't afraid, but it was such a magnificent presence, I just started to weep like a baby, something that I didn't normally do. Just weeping like a baby. Something happened to me that night. And I didn't tell anybody, what's this Jew from New York going to say? And this guy saw me walking on the floor a couple weeks later. He says, Jim, have you asked Jesus in your heart? I said, I think I have. Why do you ask? He said, you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. Something happened to me that day. I asked him, how can I keep close to God like this? Because I really feel like I know God now, something I've never known before. He said, you read the Bible every day, you'll stay close to God. And I have read the Bible for over 35 years, every day of my life. From Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, I start. And I pick, off, pick up reading where I left off the day before. And when I hit Revelation 22 and finish that chapter, I start again. 35 years, more than 35 years, I've been going back and forth through the Bible. Through the Bible. There's men that have poured their lives into me. Dr. T. E. Koshi, the evangelical chaplain of Syracuse University. Bak Singh, a, a friend of his, that, that he started over 600 churches in India. Professor Brorsma at, at uh, Purdue University, who was also the pastor of my church and a professor at Purdue. And then Professor Buck Hatch, who's at Columbia Bible College and Seminary, who, who I met when we moved to South Carolina and took on, on my first professorship there. Men have poured their lives into me. If there's any good habit that I have in my life, it is because godly men have poured themselves into me. I want to pour into other people's lives. And this is why I take very seriously my relationship with students. I want to pour into their lives. Any good thing in me, I want to pour into them. This is the blessings of the Lord. This is my family. This is my granddaughter, my wife who's here today. These are my four children. You can tell the one who's not genetically connected. This is my son-in-law. And... and uh, um, this is, this, this is uh, uh, my two granddaughters. They live in Israel and uh, uh, they live in Jerusalem there. And this is just a blessing of God. And I say this as a testimony. We met, my wife and I met at Syracuse University. In 32 years, we're still married. And I'm proud of that. And I'm proud of the fact that my four children and my son-in-law all love me and enjoy being with me and I enjoy being with them. And for those of you who are grown and your children are grown and out of the house, you know that this is not something that you take for granted. That your spouse loves you after all these years and you love being with this person and that your children all love you. This is something that is a blessing from God and I never take it for granted. Okay, so does science dispel faith? Does science dispel faith? Well, science has never shaken my faith. Never. Well, I'm not, I'm not alone in this. Lord Kelvin. Lord Kelvin uh, uh, helped develop two of the laws of thermodynamics. I just did a, a, a one-week speaking tour at uh, a Cambridge University, and I was able to see where Lord Kelvin was a student. And I could see where, saw where Isaac Newton was a student there. Charles Darwin was a student there. I mean, that, that's quite a legacy. Um, he wrote, uh, Lord Kelvin wrote, I have long felt that there was a general impression that the scientific world believes science has discovered ways of explaining all the facts of nature without adopting any definite belief in a creator. I have never doubted that impression was utterly groundless. Science strengthens my faith. It strengthens my faith. Lord Kelvin said, the more thoroughly I conduct scientific research, 
the more I believe science excludes atheism. If you strongly enough, if, if you think strongly enough, you will be forced by science to the belief in God, which is the foundation of all religion. Science strengthens my faith. We, had a, we, we were building a molecular computer at one point, and we worked so hard to get all these molecules in there in a, a disordered assembly of molecules, and we would get voltage pulses to program it to do something useful. Just like a brain, that, that there's this assembly that has large-scale order, but these interconnect pathways haven't yet been formed, and you begin to learn by giving more and more firing pulses. We wanted to build what we were calling a molecular computer. We had called it a synthetic brain project, and this was, this was in around 2000. DARPA said I had to change the name. They were afraid of what the press was going to say. But we gave these voltage pulses, and we could get little AND gates, OR gates, or half adders out of this thing. And then my three-year-old son would come running to me. How do you do this? And thinking... And he would speak to me. I said, where is it? I put it over there. You, you, you did what? I put it over there. Totally logical. In English, when we have short words like put, we, don't, we, said, I, we, we say, I will put, I did put. You don't put ED at the end. But his brain did the natural extrapolation. The language is messed up. The brain did exactly what he should say. I put it. Past tense. His brain did that. Thinking unit. How do you do that? Such sophistication in this thing. It makes me say, how could this be done? Here's a promise. I started meditating on the scriptures, like I said, every day of my life. This is the verse that I probably spent more time thinking about than any other verse. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. And I understand more than the age, because I have observed your precepts. Look what he says. He says, I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I have had the great blessing of studying under some really great people. This says, I will have more insight than them if I make the, med- the testimonies of God my meditation. It is my meditation all the day. The Word of God is extremely specific. Every time you see blessing coupled to the Word of God, it is be- through daily meditation. Maybe there's a blessing for three days a week. Maybe there's not. I don't know. There's no so written word. But there is a written word about everyday meditation. It puts it two ways. Every day or day and night. So I've meditated on the Word of God every day of my life. And the Bible promises that I'm more insight than all my teachers. And it doesn't say just Bible teachers. It says than all your teachers. And I love the scriptures. And I love science. The excitement of a scientist with faith. I'm not the first one. There's lots before me. I look at Ronald Ross. He discovered that, that malaria, the malaria parasite, uh, lives in, in, in the, the mosquito's stomach. Here's, here's Ronald Ross. In 1897, he discovered this. And here's what he wrote on the day of discovery. He sent this, this poem to his wife. This day, relenting God has placed within my hand a wondrous thing, and God be praised at his command. Seeking his secret deeds with tears and toiling breath, I find thy cunning seeds, O miserable, murdering, O million murdering death. I know this little thing a myriad men will save. O death, where is thy sting, thy victory, O grave? Here is obviously a man who has meditated on the scriptures and loves his science. You read the stories of how he was working in, in India. He's from a wealthy family in, in England. And he, he did his research in, in in uh, uh, India. He didn't have to. He came from a wealthy family, but he wanted to be there. No fans. He couldn't have people fanning him because of the parts. 
of the dissected mosquito parts. He would work, and it says his, his sweat came out, just covered the eyepieces on his microscope so that he couldn't turn the eyepiece anymore because it was all rusted. His last remaining eyepiece had a crack right across the middle. But he was driven to find this answer, and he found it. And he loved God, and he loved science. And it drove him to do more. This is what having faith in God can do. I'll give you an extor- a story from my own life. September 3rd, 1993. I had just gotten tenure. Uh, I got tenure after three years. I was, God just blessed my program. I was invited back to Purdue to give a talk. I stayed in the P- Purdue Memorial Union and Hotel. In that building, I was praying that morning. So I always pray before I give a lecture. And, and I prayed that... that uh, um, God would really bless this chemistry lecture that I was going to give. And I was, it was a, a little bit of a trying time because, because uh, um, I would be giving this lecture before my, my PhD mentor, H. Nagishi, who won the Nobel Prize in 2010. At that time, he had not had the Nobel Prize. And, I, and, and, and the thing is that, that um, the Lord started to raise my faith as I started to read the scriptures that morning. What I was reading was out of Matthew 21:21. 21, 21. It says, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and you do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. I said, Lord, you're really raising my faith through this verse. I pray that I give the best seminar ever in that department at Purdue. Ever. And the Lord reassured me, you will. I said, well, Lord, how am I going to know? How am I going to know it's the best? The department's 100 years old. How would I know? And I said, how about this, Lord? If it's the best seminar ever, that my mentor, my, my mentor says to me that that was a super seminar. And he didn't usually use the word super. In fact, what Nagishi used to say to me whenever I was a student, whatever result I brought him, he would say, pretty good. For your level. <laughs> and I never got a man above the man's waist. And I said, Lord, I pray that the man says that it was a super seminar. When I got done giving that seminar, he was sitting right on the front row, right on the end, and he stood up and he said, Super! Super! <laughs> I stepped down off, off the stage and I, I, I went over to this man. Sitting right behind him was H.C. Brown. H.C. Brown won the 1979 Nobel Prize in chemistry for the hydroboration reaction. And I... And I he was sitting there in his chair and I shook his hand. I said, thank you for coming to the seminar today. And he held on to my hand. And he was in his 80s at the time. He held on to my hand. He says, I want you to know something. That was the best seminar I've ever seen in my life. And I said, that's very kind of you to say that. In a typical Nobel Prize winning fashion, he said, I'm not saying it to be kind. I really mean it. <laughs> there is an excitement that comes in the life of a man with faith who pursues a career in science. How does a cell operate chemically? So here's a cell. I mean, this is just an extraordinary machine. This is a factory, just an utter factory. How does it work chemically? I mean, you show all of these structures, but what are the chemicals that make up this structure? We have some understanding of that. But there's a lot of things we don't understand. How these, the, the, these tubules form so rapidly and then just break down. And it's absolutely and utterly extraordinary. Though I do not understand the vast chemical mechanisms in a cell, it clearly does operate. It's there. They're there in front of us. They're right here. It works. It's not, it is not 
improper to ask the question, by what chemical mechanisms does it function? Is it wrong to ask that? Would anybody say, don't ask that question? That's just a black box. To ask a question like that is improper. No, they would say, yeah, that's a good question. By what chemical mechanisms does it function? The very question spawns further investigation. That is a good thing. This is what we do in science. We ask the question. And we encourage people to ask the question, which spawns further research. We encourage this. The question often asked to me by students is, what do you think about evolution? This is the first time in a general audience that I am exposing this like this. Usually I wait for the question and ask, now I'll come right out. <laughs> Let me say, all of my colleagues are Darwinists, and I love them as people, and I deeply respect them as scientists. All of my colleagues, and I love them as human beings, and I deeply respect them as scientists. And I hope they feel the same about me. And here I'm saying a Darwinist, here I'm defining Darwinist holes that random mutation and natural selection account for the complexity of life. The thing that most often impacts my Darwinist friends is this. When they're confronted with a devout Christian Darwinian skeptic. Now, I am a Jew who follows this Messiah Jesus, and people don't understand this, so they label me as a Christian. But I was born a Jew, I will die a Jew. Paul said, I am a Jew. He wrote in the New Testament, I am a Jew. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin. But anyway, I, my faith expression is very much like that of a Christian. So, is confronted with a, a, a devout Christian Darwinian skeptic who is also an equally accomplished scientist. You know, they do a double take. Well, I don't want to be an attacking critic. I just want to learn. So my question to the Darwinists is this. I just ask them to explain evolution from a chemical perspective. Explain this to me. Macroevolution from a chemical perspective. Evolution of a complex system. I want to understand the chemicals that go on here. I want to understand the pathway. Not the origin of life. Origin of life is so much harder. Nobody knows that. Life. Nobody does. So here's what I put on my website. This has been up there for about eight years. Seven years. At jmtour.com. Some are disconcerted or even angered that I signed a statement back in 2001 along with 700 other scientists. We are skeptical of the claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged. That's it. This was sent to me by an email. Somebody sent me an email. Could you, could you agree with this statement? I, you know how fast you are with email? Boom. Yes. Boom. Little did I know that this would become the touchstone of the debate. I had no idea. I just a quick yes in an email. That was it. But as I look back, I don't regret it. Because all I'm doing is saying, I'm skeptical of the claims because I don't see a chemical pathway. You can show me blobs. Fine. Show me the chemical pathway. It's not there. I sit in my office with chemists. Every time I'm alone with them, every time I'm alone with people in the National Academy, Nobel Prize winners, experienced synthetic chemists. And I sit there and I say... Can you explain to me the molecular transformations that occur in macroevolution? Every time they've said no. When I've had two chemists in my room, 
in, in my office. I once had a National Academy member, and the other was a National Academy member and a Nobel Prize winner. And, and, and I asked them, can you explain this to me? And that was their answer. They just stared at me. Because when they're with each other, they don't want to answer. But the no answer is an answer in itself. No chemist understands this, I think, in my experience. So this is what I wrote, and I say, careful examination. I don't say it's wrong. I don't know if it's wrong. How do I know if it's wrong? I just want to know. What's wrong with asking the question? It should be encouraged. Careful examination should be encouraged. It's not wrong to answer, ask the question. Science is all about asking the question and then saying, show me, show me. I've asked very high-level biologists this. They go, oh, this is all worked out. Show me. I'll send you some references. I said, I need the molecular structure. I'll send it to you. They send me something with a bunch of fish heads. It's not a molecular structure. And I said, I can't follow this. Show me the molecular pathway. You want to fly over 30,000 feet? I could get you anywhere. But you get me... You get me molecular structure. That's all I'm asking. So here's what I wrote on my website. I simply do not understand chemically how macroevolution could have happened. Hence, am I not free to join the ranks of the skeptical and assign such a statement without reprisals from those that disagree with me? Furthermore, when I, a nonconformist, ask proponents for clarification, they get flustered in public and confessional in private, wherein they sheepishly confess to me that they don't understand it either. Well, that's all I'm saying. I don't understand, but I'm saying it publicly as opposed to privately. Does anyone understand the chemical details behind macroevolution? If so, I'd like to sit with that person and be taught. So I invite them to meet with me. Lunch is my treat. Until then, I maintain that no chemist understands. Hence, we are collectively bewildered. And I have not even addressed the origin of first life issues. For me, that's even more scientifically mysterious than evolution. Darwin never addressed origin of life, and I can see why he did not. He was far too smart for that. Present-day scientists that expose their thoughts on this become ever so timid with me when they talk with me privately. I simply cannot understand their source for their confidence when they are addressing their positions publicly. This whole idea of coming against a person to ask the question smacks to me of a religion. Because you get upset when people start questioning your religion, you have no answers, and you, you just want to cut them off. But science isn't like this. It never should be like this. I just ask the question. Show me. I, for, for seven years, it's been up on my website. I'll sit and have lunch with you. Nobody has come. The Atheist Society saw this. They said, we'll pay for the lunch. They, they, they wrote to me an email. I don't read blogs, so they wrote to me. We put it up on our blog. We, we, you, we'll pay for the lunch. Somebody go to Houston. You know how many chemists there are and chemical engineers in Houston? Nobody's come. Graduate students sometimes, a graduate student from Berkeley said that he would come. I said, come on. I'll pick you up from the airport. Come on. He said, well, if I had a ticket, I would come. Someone else on his blog said, I'll buy you the ticket. Then I said, it's not going to be recorded. It's just you and me. Explain. Oh, well, if it's not recorded, I'm not coming. So finally, I had a dialogue with this guy over the phone. He says, have you ever read anything on, on, on evolution of a complex system from the chemical perspective? I said, no, no. Would you share those with me? Send me the article. Send me one to three articles. That's all I can really read and study in a couple of days, but I will really study it. You show me where they show the chemical development for evolution of a complex system. He said, I'll send it to you. Three months later, I still hadn't gotten it. And I, I called him up again, and, and he says, oh, well, you know, I've been really busy. He says, let, 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 let me see, do you believe in it? I said, 
send me the article, man. You told me that it's there. Send me the article. I want to learn. And people look at me as if I'm trying to cause trouble by asking the question. Where in science are you not allowed to ask a question except here? What's the outcome of my skepticism? Well, let me just say that I've never been persecuted for my Christian faith or my beliefs or my thoughts on creation and evolution. Never. Have I, was I denied tenure? No. Have I ever lost funding? Not that I can identify. I don't know. I, I, a lot of grants aren't funded. I just assumed that I didn't make the cut. It wasn't very, very well written. Harassment, not to any degree worth mentioning. Ridicule on rare occasions, but not often directly re- uh, 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 directed to me. They'll ridicule me to other people. Uh, confrontations, yes, but these are often diffused with a couple of questions. I just ask the question. I don't want to argue with anyone. I just want to ask the question. And then the confrontations go away. Have I not be, been hired for positions? I suspect so, because people have told me. Have I been excluded from professional societies? Yes, from what I've been told. But, you know, I, I really, Groucho Marx helps me out here. Groucho Marx says, I don't want to be a member of any society that would have me. So then, <laughs> then I, can, I, can, uh, I can rest in that. Am I criticized for my skepticism? Well, I think of the words of Charles Spurgeon. Certainly, I'm criticized for my skepticism. But, but I get comfort through the writings of Charles Spurgeon. Those, that criticize you, those who criticize us are probably no more mistaken than those who praise us. Try to win your critics with double kindness. And he's right. I mean, it, 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 uh, uh, just, just try to win them over by being kind. I'll just ask you a question and just come back in a kind way. I'm not going to write a sharp email. I'll come back and just write something and just say, you know, just answer it for me. Help me out here. You know, there's, there's, just, just help me out. Okay, here's the hope that I see. Science is self-correcting. If Darwinian theory is correct, and it would make my life a lot simpler if it were, it really would. If Darwinian theory is correct, the chemical description will become evident. As of today, in my opinion, there is little such evidence, so further investigation is warranted. Further investigation is encouraged. We should do this. Um, and remember, I'm a synthetic chemist, and to me, everything, everything I see is molecular structure. If anyone can understand a molecular basis for evolution, it is me. I should be the one to be able to understand this. Because I live with molecules, I think about molecules, I dream about molecules, I wake up at night and I write molecular structure, this is all I think about. I don't understand it. I suppose 99, greater than 99% of scientists never think about confronting anyone on these issues. They're too busy with other things. So for those of you who think that scientists are frothing and want to come after you based on this, most scientists, they're too busy with other things. There's just a few. There's just a few. A small group of them. And a lot of them were born shortly after World War II in a certain part of the world. And they've made it their, 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 world, their, their, their life's desire in their latter days to try to get what they think is the record straight. The vast majority of scientists have no bother. They don't even worry much about this. The younger generation has a deeper sense of social fairness and justice, and they're less impressed with conformal academic fluff. I have great hope in the younger generation because they're not involved. They don't care about squelching people. The older folks do. The younger, this is going to get corrected because the younger folks are coming up. Some battles are won by one nursing home and one grave at a time. These guys just, you just put them in a chair and they drool and they become irrelevant. They become irrelevant. 
and then they die, and the younger generation is coming along, and they're going to straighten this thing out. That's Rick Smalley, a good friend of mine. He won the 1996 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. My primary mission, to which I am called, is to reflect the love of Jesus. And I did to this man, who was a real skeptic. In his last few years of life, he came to salvation in Jesus Christ. And what he told me on his deathbed, three days before he passed away of leukemia, he said, Jim, it is clear. There is no molecular basis for this Darwinian evolution. Summary, my interest in chemistry and molecular structure, I told you about how I came to faith, and I hope many of you have the similar experience, that if you ask Jesus Christ into your life, you say, Lord, forgive me because I'm a sinner, and come into my life, he will do it. And you can see the power of God in your life, and you can be a changed individual. It happened in my life. I was a bitter and angry young man, very often had thought about suicide, had often thought about having murders with suicide. So I can understand when that happens. I never did that sort of thing, but I thought about it a lot. And when Jesus Christ came into my life, I didn't stop smiling for weeks. Something happened to me that day. You can experience the same. I have joy in my students and in my family. I have an excitement of science, uh, 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 the excitement of, scientists, of a scientist with faith. That's what I live. My Darwinian friends and my yearning for a chemical explanation and further investigation. This is the summary of what I want to leave you. I talked to you about my Darwinist friends, and I yearn for a chemical explanation. I want this. Help me with this. If you know the answer, share it with me. I want to know. I will not, what I even said on my website, when you come and share with me over lunch, I will not contest in any way until I stop understanding, and I will ask you for more detail if I stop understanding. Persecution and criticism of the skeptic? It, it does occur sometimes, but uh, uh, it's been really childlike persecution and uh, uh, criticism compared to what other people in the world have to suffer for what they go through. So, so I don't want to complain about that. There is hope in the young, there's the death of the old, and science is self-corrected. Thank you.